Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Natalia Shpilova Said. I'm a host of New Books in Eastern European Studies, a podcast channel on the New Book Network. I'm delighted to speak today with Marko Puleri, uh, author of Ukrainian, Russophone, Other Russian Hybrid Identities and Narratives in Post Soviet Culture and Politics, published in 2020. Marko Puleri is research fellow in post-Soviet studies and adjunct professor of history of Eastern Europe, nation building and protection of minorities at the University of Bologna. His research interests include contemporary Russian and Ukrainian sociocultural developments and nation building in the post-Soviet area. His latest book is Ukrainian, Russophone, Other Russian Hybrid Identities and Narratives in Post-Soviet Culture and Politics. He has written several articles on the Ukrainian, Russian, cultural and social history. From 2015 to 2017, he has been among the coordinators of the international research project entitled Russia and China in the Global World, State and Society Between Internal Dynamics and External Projections. Hello, Marco. Hello, Natalia. Thank you so much for joining me today. And I am uh, really looking forward to the discussion of your book. The topic that you cover in your recent book is complex and multi-layered. And I think the title of the book shows this as well. Ukrainian, Russophone, Other Russian Hybrid Identities and Narratives in Post-Soviet and Culture and Politics. So there are a lot of aspects to consider and there are um, a lot of uh, histories involved in the issues that you include in this publication. The language question, which doesn't seem to leave Ukraine anytime soon. The identity question, which uh, still in many cases in Ukraine is uh, closely associated with what language one speaks, Soviet and post-Soviet cultural and political conditions, which heavily influenced the first decades of independent Ukraine, which still um, seem to define it and at least produce some influences today. 
So in a word, it's a real challenge to consider all these aspects in a coherent way as they create entanglements that are rather difficult to unravel. How did you situate yourself in these entangled clusters of historical and cultural narratives? Okay. Uh, first of all, I would like to thank you for your interest in my research, Natalia. I'm very glad to be here today and to discuss today with you um, about my research. Um, I believe that my book is quite open to different readings and uh, perspectives. That it comes uh, especially from uh, my uh, background in uh, Russian and Ukrainian studies and so mainly in uh, literature studies. Uh, that then brought me also to uh, get interested in uh, political, global political dynamics uh, uh, in Ukraine and in the broader uh, post-Soviet region. I believe that the very title of the book um, is, uh, is quite telling. So, as you said, Ukrainian, Russophone, other Russian. So I tried this way to um, pose a, a different research question than the one that maybe was already posed in other studies, in other uh, books published throughout the uh, latest years, if we just think about uh, the uh, whole research uh, that was produced in the US, in Canada, in Europe, about the developments in post-Maidan Ukraine, also in a kind of a long-term perspective um, about what happened in, in Ukraine in the post-Soviet era. Uh, I believe that trying also to intersect a, um, a kind of a view uh, on the developments in literature in, uh, uh, in the broader cultural field in Ukraine uh, with the uh, developments in politics and so in the political discourse, maybe we could find some new uh, questions, research questions to uh, to, uh, to, to think about, but also some potential new answers that can be found in the cultural field of Ukraine. So uh, my idea was uh, um, exactly to deconstruct these categories such as Ukrainian, Russian and Russophone as a kind of a static uh, categories or static um, and essentialized uh, entities. Uh, trying also to uh, focus on the uh, idea of Russophonia or of, or, uh, of Russophone identities and Russophone subjectivities as uh, uh, hybrid subjectivities. Because this way I tried to uh, deconstruct also the idea of Russian or Russianness as a kind of a unified world, a unified uh, array of perspectives and 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 identities, trying also to look at the Russian language as a global language, as a world language, so in a way, as a, a language that can be also um, that can also have kind of different standards, different developments uh, worldwide, and this was maybe the starting point to look at the current developments in Ukraine and. Uh, uh, and to look at how these kind of uh, identities and categories such as Russophone, Russian and Ukrainian are structured through uh, the use of uh, narratives. Narratives that can be implemented in both the political field by political actors, but also in the cultural field by intellectuals while looking at the current developments in the country.
So the language question, which primarily focus on what language one speaks, Ukrainian or and Russian in this case, is one of those issues that stir emotions not only on the personal level, but also on the public, first and foremost, political level. Uh, when Ukraine approaches another round of political elections, the language issue is brought to the very surface of political debates again and again. And it goes without saying that uh, this issue has been highly uh, politicized. What's your take on the language concern in Ukraine? How did you approach it in your research? So uh, that's a very important question in Ukraine, but not only in Ukraine, of course. And I believe that the main question we should pose ourselves is uh, um, to reflect uh, around uh, the idea of who owns a language. Um, we usually think about a national language or a state language as a kind of um, product that is owned by the state and not by the speakers. And that's something that maybe we could we should try to overcome also while looking at the uh, Ukrainian cultural field where, for example, it is possible, and as the uh, Maidan revolution also showed us, to speak Russian but to uh, feel closer to the Ukrainian state. So in a way to create this kind of contradiction between the idea of state and the idea of language. Uh, that's, of course, the, uh, the starting point also to understand how different Russophone identities and so different identities uh, were created by people who speak Russian in Ukraine and cannot be um, connected to the idea of a, a link to the Russian state. And, uh, and I believe this is something uh, very important uh, that reveals more than a political crisis, as it was uh, um, in a way discussed in the aftermath of the Maidan revolution, the contested annexation of Crimea to Russia and the war in Donbas uh, in, in the broader public debate. So more than focusing on a political crisis, we should focus more on a kind of epistemological crisis. And that's what, and that's what I try to analyze in my book. So I believe that more than uh, discussing about uh, the uh, developments um, uh, of the struggle, of the so-called struggle that was constructed in the Russian media, mostly uh, between uh, Ukrainian speaking, uh, Ukrainians uh, um, and the Russian-speaking uh, Ukrainians and Russians in the country, we should more discuss about the way in which these uh, categories were structured in the political debate since the uh, collapse of the Soviet Union, where we saw this uh, um, wide and this uh, large group of people that we could uh, define as Russian speakers that were still trying to construct, to build, a new identity uh, that could go beyond these kinds of narratives that were constructed by the state. That's, to, that's also why I tried to focus mostly on literature, because a literature can also be described as a kind of a, a, a speech act. And so also as a way to, um, to uh, as an attempt to construct uh, and, to, um, and, to be, and to create a kind of self-awareness of the own identity and of the own place in the new world that was uh, created in the aftermath of the collapse of the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. um, 
I would like to move to uh, that notion that you put in the title of your book, um, Hybrid Identities. So Ukraine is a multinational and it's safe to say multilingual uh, country. And uh, more often than not, uh, when one speaks about bilingualism in Ukraine, it's implied that the conversation in the first place will be about Russian and Ukrainian. However, this implication leaves behind, for example, Polish and Hungarian. In your book, you identify identities that are formed in a Ukrainian-Russian language environment as hybrid. Uh, would you elaborate a little bit on hybrid identities in Ukraine and what does this understanding of Ukraine and Ukrainians um, involve? Mm -hmm. So I, I tried to select some uh, concepts and some tools from post-colonial studies because I believe they could be useful also to look at the current, develop, current developments in Ukraine. There was a great debate about the potential application of post-colonial studies to the post-Soviet world that, uh, uh, that started uh, even in the, in the 90s. And I believe that post-colonial studies can actually be helpful um, in, in post-Soviet studies when we try to grasp some concepts and to take some, uh, some concepts and some theories that were elaborated uh, for the study of the third world because uh, they can tell us something about um, this kind of uh, overlap between different languages, traditions, and the attempt to uh, create a unifying narrative that can, in a way, bring together all the different uh, features of the, of the new post-Soviet national, national fields. So I, um, I believe that a hybridity can be a useful a tool for understanding the uh, contemporary developments in Ukrainian culture because it gives us the possibility exactly to um, to go beyond those kinds of narratives that were created and were inherited by Ukraine in uh, by from imperial and Soviet and Soviet times hybridity was a, a kind of identity that maybe was also experienced by the other cultural actors in the history of Ukraine we can just think about the most uh, outstanding uh, um, example, uh, the example of uh, Nikolai Gogol or Nikola Gogol, uh, that uh, in a way suggests us that this kind of struggle between the two souls uh, of, um, of Gogol uh, is still experienced by contemporary, uh, by contemporary Ukrainians. But uh, maybe this, uh, this hybridity was also, uh, in a way, in, uh, brought again to the cent to center stage in the aftermath of Euro Maidan, where we saw a lot of Russian speakers that were there uh, in uh, in the main square uh, of uh, of Kiev, in the Square of Freedom, and uh, trying to defend their own rights and to fight next to Ukrainian speakers for a new idea of Ukraine. It is a um, um, hybridity can also help us understand how the idea of contemporary Ukraine is still in a state of formation because different actors are uh, in a, are uh, in a way join the debate around the shape uh, of uh, uh, of the Ukrainian nation the shape of the new uh, Ukrainian uh, affiliation to the Ukrainian state and and we see how the um, Maidan revolution brought exactly this question to center stage the problem is um, comes uh, um, again from the, uh, con the, we could say, the continuation of this refusal of hybridity as a kind of threat 
to the Ukrainian state that comes, of course, from the uh, from the historical experience of Ukrainians that most of all experience a kind of hybridity, we could say, as a uh, as a forced uh, situation, as a forced experience, it, uh, experience that was brought by uh, by the uh, imperial and Soviet rule. If we just think about the uh, bans on Ukrainian language that were uh, issued in, uh, in, uh, in imperial times, or the struggle between the two cultures that, that was developed in Soviet times. Nowadays, we saw that even without any uh, political support, at least in the Ukrainian state, from the Ukrainian state and Ukrainian political actors to the Russian language, Russian language products Russian language um, works, uh, literary works, were created by Ukrainians for Ukrainians in the Ukrainian state. Um, these products and this kind of, uh, uh, we could say, uh, cultural market was then appropriated by the Russian state uh, as Russian. Uh, this is something that we should always um, take into account while thinking about the role of Russian, the contested role of Russian language and Russian culture in Ukraine. Because we see that something is constantly produced in Russian uh, in the cultural field of Ukraine, but uh, is not institutionalized in Ukraine, but is mostly appropriated by the Russian state. And I guess this is also kind of a chance that is lost by the Ukrainian state actors while thinking about the possibility to create a kind of independent um, uh, Ukrainian Russian speaking uh, cultural field. And maybe this is one of the main questions that I try to pose in my book while thinking about informal and formal uh, connections between Ukrainian speaking and Russian speaking cultural actors that, uh, um, that were not, didn't have a proper uh, platform to develop from. Uh, that could be offered and could be created by 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 the state itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's very interesting what you're describing right now. And uh, to some extent, um, this kind of um, lack of institutionalization of uh, literature, which is written in Russian uh, in Ukraine, is uh, connected to some extent um, to the contemporary events. However. We can also say that it was quite true for the uh, 90s as well. So, um, well, the the reason I'm bringing this up is that, well, I just uh, share my personal memory about reading Gogol for the first time. Uh, It was a very strange feeling, I would say, because I was reading them, uh, I was reading his uh, works when I was taking a uh, high school course uh, in Russian literature. However, it was those Ukrainian stories that uh, he first published. And it was a very uh, weird sense when you are reading a Russian writer, uh, the way he was presented to us, but you realize that you can connect with him more than, for example, with other Russian writers. And he situates you in Ukraine, and um, he guides you through those uh, Ukrainian, let's say, landscapes and uh, cultural environments. So it was quite a... um, Uh, Quite a strange um, feeling, I would say. Well, today, uh, as far as I know, uh, Gogol is taught in both courses, uh, world literature 
and uh, no, I'm not quite. I'm not quite sure about Ukraine, and I think Ukrainian literature as well for some uh, uh, lower uh, um, school levels, if I'm not mistaken. But uh, I can be wrong uh, there. So, in other words, there is this kind of uh, gesture to somehow situate at least Gogol in two spaces, or maybe not just in two spaces, because Gogol is more than two spaces. It's always like all encompassing, all encompassing um, scope. So I would like you to uh, comment on this kind of um, very um, strange uh, attitude, I would say, uh, to literature uh, written in uh, Russian, uh, not to, uh, only today, because well, I can rationalize more what's going to what's going today than what was going on in the nineties. So it, sometimes I think that um, some ch uh, some opportunities to establish, for example, Russian uh, in Ukraine uh, as our language, for example, because you just uh, mentioned that it's the question who owns the language, uh, were dismissed, um, not just dismissed, but maybe disregarded and overlooked uh, because the um, process, which is quite important, uh, not only for Ukraine, but in Russia today, means that Russian is only for the Russian Federation. Uh, we do have our language policies. However, these language po policies are also shaped by our neighbors. Mm -hmm. That that that's true. I definitely agree with you. And I guess this is a question that um, strictly depends on the institutionalization of literary canons, not only in the post-Soviet region but even worldwide. I was thinking while listening to your uh, uh, insights. I was, um, I was thinking about the situation in the academic field in Italy. For example, um, when, I, when I tried to, um, to study these phenomena, so Russian-speaking, uh, Russian-language literature in Ukraine, I, I had a, a, a lot of difficulties also to find uh, a kind of common field and common ground for conversation with experts in Russian studies, which is, of course, the main field of study in, uh, in, uh, in Italy, and to broaden uh, their view of this field as also including um, literary phenomena emerging in the whole post-Soviet region, in Ukraine, in Kazakhstan, or in, uh, in Estonia, for example. I guess this is a very important issue to be answered uh, in, in both the academic field and in the public debate. I'm thinking about and I mentioned this um, event in, uh, in the introduction to my book while, while uh, um, talking about uh, Svetlana Alexievich, mm -hmm. uh, which in a way brought to center stage of the public debate the issue uh, of, uh, around their identity. Uh, because um, as far as we had the chance to read in, uh, in the newspapers in uh, the Russian Federation, in Ukraine, or in uh, Belarus, we saw how uh, different uh, perspectives and different uh, processes of appropriation or rejection of this author um, were, were in a way uh, enacted and implemented. I guess this is also an issue that involves the international recognition of this phenomenon as uh, a belonging to a specific, uh, to a specific national, we could say, uh, cultural, cultural field. I am thinking about the position of Andrei Kurkov in the contemporaneity. For example, we know that Kurkov was criticized 
was uh, harshly criticized in Ukraine for adopting a uh, Russian language uh, in his uh, uh, in his works. While in the West is the most famous author, Ukrainian author, and the most translated authors uh, in in the West, and not only in the West. And we see how this process of recognition abroad brought him to be recognized even even in Ukraine itself. So that's why I believe that uh, to discuss this kind of issue, we should always uh, think not only about politics, but also about the different direction that can be under, undertaken by the uh, cultural market, the global cultural market, market uh, worldwide. I had also the chance maybe to uh, get uh, get acquainted with uh, with the Russian speaking uh, Ukrainian Russian speaking authors uh, in the West uh, before then um, getting acquainted with them in Ukraine itself. I remember my first experiences in Ukraine looking for books uh, written by Russian speaking authors um, and uh, I, that this kind of cast brought me to Petrivka, so to the black market that was the only way to find these books because uh, they couldn't be distributed in the uh, internal uh, literary market in Ukraine, or in, in, a, in a way it was also, also difficult to find them in the Ukrainian literary market. Even in the post-Maidan times, I remember also looking for some books by, um, written by, authored by Vladimir Rafienko, older books that were previously published by uh, Russian uh, publishers, uh, I, I could find them only in Kringatnia uh, Yeh, in, in Lviv, in a devoted show, in a shop devoted to uh, foreign uh, literature, or to, uh, it, was, it happened to me only once, or to Russian, Russiskomovna literatura Ukraine. So it was very, very interesting to see how even this process of canonization, we could say, of this phenomenon is still in a state of formation, not only the idea of, of creating a new potential Russophone identity, Ukrainian Russophone identity, but also uh, the a connection between this process and the process concerning uh, literature. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off mm-hmm. uh, i would like to go back to that uh, notion of hybrid identities and to go back of course again um and in your book if i'm not mistaken you uh, mentioned that he's probably one of the first um contested literary contested um figures in uh, ukrainian uh, literature uh, or the father, the father of literary contested identities uh, in uh, in Ukrainian literature, um, are hybrid identities different 
depending on the time period when we um, when we uh, talk about them. For example, is a hybrid identity of Google will differ from Kurkov's um, hybrid identity, or from any? Uh, maybe maybe you can comment a little bit on uh, other uh, examples that uh, you discuss in your book. So that, that's, of course, um, an important question to pose. And I believe that, uh, yes, I, my answer would be yes, of course, hybrid identities and also hybridity uh, in order to be a kind of, uh, uh, we could say, effective category for, for analysis of these literary and political phenomena could be, should be uh, defined uh, differently uh, according to the different historical periods that we are analyzing. I believe that contemporary hybridity is different, and for example, the contemporary hybridity of uh, Vladimir Rafienko, uh, a Russian language writer from from Donetsk, is different from the hybridity experienced from another contemporary uh, Russian language uh, author from Kiev, such as Alexei Nikitin, and it is of course different also from the hybridity experienced by. Uh, Nikolai Vasilievich Gogol. So, uh, in a way, we should we should understand hybridity as a different way to uh, approach this kind of uh, cultural experiences and uh, identities created by uh, individuals in Ukraine as uh, being in contact with a different uh, different uh, cultural, uh, we could say, and uh, life experiences. First of all. So everyday use of a language or um, everyday um, everyday contact with uh, with different uh, cultural products, we could say, and also um, hybridity as depending on on the way these kinds of static narratives that we sh- that we tried to describe at the beginning of our conversation, such as the ones describing Russianness, Ukra- Ukrainianness. Uh, and Ruskayazichnas, uh, so uh, we could say uh, the Russian-speaking identity as uh, as static identities. So hybridity is a way exactly to uh, face to uh, overcome uh, this kind of static nature of uh, of uh, um, of, um, of structuring the own identity. And, uh, and I believe uh, reading, for example, and or thinking about the uh, experience of Vladimir Afienko moving from uh, Donetsk, Donetsk uh, to uh, Kiev uh, in 2014 and uh, starting writing in, in, in uh, Ukrainian, being translated from Russian into Ukrainian for the broader uh, Ukrainian uh, readership, uh, of course, can give us, can tell us that the, the hybrid is also uh, able to readapt to different contexts, to different political uh, constraints, and, uh, and to change uh, throughout, the, um, throughout the life experience of the different cultural actors that can be uh, described under the label of hybridity. Of course, it is a, it is a, a tool. It is a, an analytical tool to describe these experiences. We could term it also differently. We could adopt also different categories to describe this kind of um, multiplicity of, of identities and of identities and of potential paths of development. But uh, but I believe that a hybridity is also a, an important category for 
for Ukraine because um, it was also one of the first terms that was uh, used in the aftermath of the, when widely used in the aftermath of the uh, political events that followed Euromaidan, uh, even in the, in the academic debate. It was quite clear that something new was there to happen, something new was there to be created. And then, unfortunately, this novelty uh, was, uh, um, was not developed more or was just uh, forgotten uh, by in, in the aftermath of, uh, of uh, in, in the first political uh, developments of post-Medan Ukraine. Uh, we could think about the, um, what, what happened in, in, uh, in, uh, under the presidency of Petro Poroshenko, what is happening now. Uh, we see that uh, still the language debate as, uh, as structured in the post-Soviet times is still there and can be, can be back uh, to a center stage of the political debate uh, without adding anything new to this debate, but only uh, being able to divide Ukrainians more than creating something that can unify Ukrainians. And that's something that is really disappointing to external observers or to me as an outsider, of course, uh, in, in uh, uh, Ukrainian affairs, because I believe that um, maybe the institutionalization of Ukrainian-Russian could be of help in this, uh, uh, in this field. Of course, there is uh, uh, always the kind of threat coming from uh, the Russian state, and uh, we can mention the uh, unfamous uh, Russian word um, project, or in a way idea, that is promoted by, by the Russian Federation that could uh, reappropriate this kind of Ukrainian-Russian cultural field. But of course, I guess that uh, um, uh, political actors in Ukraine should maybe have a kind of uh, courage to take some important, some important positions that could bring to something new more than bring back to something that was already experienced by and tragical experienced by Ukrainian throughout the post-Soviet years. Mm -hmm. So, and um, your uh, expert opinion on the possibility to institutionalize hybrid identities, so to speak, through school curriculum, uh, do you think that um, it's worth considering this kind of option at, at the current political um, level, in the current political situation? Um, <laughs> that's, of course, a, um, a difficult question to answer. In my view, it, uh, it, it is worth, it should be, it would be worth to think about that. Maybe the uh, current political situation in wartime, of course, is, doesn't help uh, even the uh, contemporary uh, political uh, actors and political administration of Ukraine to take some uh, some important decisions for for the country, and maybe in uh, when the war we all hope will be over, some potential de decisions should be also all, also helpful for the reconciliation process. For example, if this reconciliation process uh, has to happen, because uh, I we all hope that this one day we we will see uh, reconciliation between uh, East Ukraine and the Donbass, the, the, the uncontrolled territories of, of Donbass and the whole Ukraine 
it will be there to happen. But of course, we, we don't know what will happen next. But uh, of course, I guess that this kind of approach to the identity issue and language issue, uh, focusing more on, uh, on civic attributes of Ukrainian identity and less to the uh, kind of uh, nationalizing um, issues, uh, um, taking into account uh, cultural issues, uh, could be, of course, of help to Ukraine and to the future, to the political future of Ukraine. Mm-hmm. And um, in Ukraine, I guess that's also something that should be discussed also in other in other parts of the post-Soviet world, while thinking about the role of Russian speakers and Russian and Russians. So this um, situation is not quite unique for Ukraine and uh, hybrid identities. Um, this issue is not that unique uh, just for Ukraine. Yes, I believe so. I think so. And that's also uh, why one of the reasons, because in the acknowledgements to my book, I, I, I wanted to mention the creation of this uh, new platform for uh, researchers and authors focusing on Russian language, uh, literary and not only literary um, cultural phenomena emerging in the post-Soviet region, but also worldwide to gather together and to discuss about this issue and to create also a new uh, kind of approach uh, to this. I guess this is something that um, uh, especially uh, people in the academia, scholars, uh, should uh, should focus more and more uh, about because this is, this is the issue, I would say, in the region, also to, um, to understand that something new was created in the last 30 years in the aftermath of the post-Soviet of the uh, of the Soviet collapse, um, and uh, and we should analyze exactly how these uh, social developments in the in the country and of course uh, Russian language identities or Russian language narratives are ones of um, are among the uh, most important social developments in the region, and uh, how these phenomena should be um, primarily under our focus mm-hmm. while looking at these countries. Uh, you just mentioned that uh, Ukraine uh, gained a, uh, its independence almost 30 years ago, uh, but still we have this ongoing issue with the language. Why? Boy, um, I guess this is um, this is um, this is of course um, it is difficult to explain. I always try to explain it, to, for example, to my students or to uh, just uh, just friends who are not in in uh, in uh, Ukrainian studies or or Russian studies. I guess this is, of course, uh, the product of the uh, political debate that emerged in the aftermath of the of the uh, of Ukrainian independence in 1991, and uh, and also the way that political field in Ukraine was structured exactly around this issue, around the language issue, and so. It is difficult to think about the um, political future of Ukraine without thinking about the role that can be played by uh, the state language. It is, of course, a product of the way the political debate was structured in the 19th century uh, and in the 20th century. So where uh, the political debate was mostly um, built in, uh, uh, in the literary and cultural debate. Uh, and so language was there to assume to to have a primary role for understanding and for stressing the difference between uh, the uh, Ukrainian national identity from the 
Russian one, for example, but not only, just let's think about the uh, Ukrainian-Polish relations too. Uh, so uh, even even today, I believe uh, uh, we should always think about the language issue as uh, politically structured, historically structured, and as also determined, of course, by the uh, the role and the post-imperial, we could say, a legacy of the Russian Federation and the, and the Russian position in the in the regional arena, at least. And so the way uh, this uh, this kind of uh, of aspect is um, uh, exploited by uh, by political actors in in the Russian Federation also to uh, to have uh, to maintain their own influence in uh, in uh, in the other countries in the post-Soviet region. It is of course a matter of uh, uh, um, of um, economic power because um, the potential uh, for the creation of uh, an independent cultural market or a media sphere in Ukraine um, uh, is, of course, uh, depending from the economic potential of, uh, of the country. And um, I, as I tried also to uh, explain in my book, this also depended on the way the cultural market, the national cultural market was restructured in the aftermath of the collapse of the Soviet Union. And we see how, for example, uh, in, in Ukraine, it is even difficult to find uh, a, a publication or a, a, or a book copy in territories which are not Kiev or Viv as the cultural capitals, we could say, of, of the country. This is, of course, a problem, in, uh, whereas we think that in, those, in other regions we could mostly find uh, cultural products in Russian, which are, of course, whichever... Uh, um, a broader and wider distribution than the cultural products in Ukraine. In Ukrainian, of course, this is something that is changing in the aftermath of of, of Maidan revolution, and uh, and hopefully the situation will uh, will um, will be different in uh, in uh, five ten years. Mm-hmm. Um, I would like to ask you this question about. Um... Um, those cases when, for different reasons, speakers decide to stop speaking Russian. And the cases like that uh, were quite numerous uh, after the events of uh, 2014. And I would like to connect this episode with your previous thought about um, hybrid identities as some sign of identities which are in the process of formation. So is there any connection or what does this uh, act of uh, dropping one of your languages, for example, may signal to you? And how mm-hmm. it uh, reflects, for example, uh, the um, uh, existence of uh, hybrid identities? Does that mean that hybrid identity uh, changes its form or it transforms into something different or it just a different manifestation? I, I believe that uh, this is, of course, an aspect that we should take into account, and this is something that is very telling of the way hybridity is uh, able to uh, change its form throughout life experience and according to the different developments in the uh, surrounding environment, we could say, uh, politically and, and culturally. Um, I see that um, hybridity in the Ukrainian context is... Um, is really going around the uh, potential triadic nexus, we could say, between 
being Ukrainians, being Russian, and being a Russophone or Ukrainophone, and so on, the different meanings that can be applied to these to these categories. I see that, uh, um, as most of the sociological research showed us, uh, um, more and more people decided to switch to Ukrainian and to speak Ukrainian, and so to stop speaking uh, Russian. But uh, it is not so much as expected, we could say. So uh, most people decided to um, to go on speaking Russian, uh, but still uh, maintaining and keeping uh, an identification with the Ukrainian state. So, uh, of course, something has changed after the uh, Euromaidan revolution, but in another way, uh, the uh, complete, we could say, switching to Ukrainian and their refusal of Russian, in my view, or at least as a, for what is happening in the Ukrainian field, is also a kind of, uh, um, we could say, a loss for the Ukrainian cultural arena. Because um, uh, a lot of writers, for example, in the cultural field, have decided not to write in Russian um, as, uh, as far as this uh, as the war with Russia is going on. So identifying Russian as the enemy's language. This is, in my view, um, uh, we should see, of course, how this uh, kind of approach will develop in the uh, forthcoming years, because we should see if this approach will be maintained by these people, or if we, if hybridity will be these writers to switch again uh, to Russia. But, um, but of course, I guess that uh, the, uh, this also depends on the uh, way the uh, Ukrainian Russian speaking cultural arena was not institutionalized. And so um, these people believed that it was worth switching to, uh, to Ukrainian in order to show uh, the, um, uh, the, um, the connection with the Ukra- their connection with the Ukrainian state, because Russian was not uh, able enough or was a, was a kind of um, a potential marker of their own position as uh, enemies of the Ukrainian state. And I guess this is, uh, this is of course, something that we should think about. I, I mentioned in the book an interview uh, um, and some, uh, uh, some uh, reflections offered by Iakiva, a contemporary um, Ukrainian-Russian-speaking uh, author from Donetsk who moved to Kiev in the aftermath of the beginning of the war, in, in Donbass, who uh, identifies herself as the uh, as a belonging to the potential last generation of Russian-speaking poets in the country. I guess this is something quite telling because uh, I guess that uh, um, losing, missing this kind of uh, um, room for hybridity can also be a kind of loss for the multiplicity, uh, heterogeneity of the Ukrainian of the Ukrainian cultural scene. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and in your book, you also mention another aspect when you talk about why some uh, uh, writers decided to stop writing uh, in Russian. And one of those aspects is connected with how they are um, uh, read and uh, receive uh, and uh, um, how they are understood uh, in Russia. For example, because the writers from Ukraine who write in Russia in Russian um, are considered as writers from the periphery or uh, provincial uh, writers, and um, to some extent, it can be a factor 
um, why some writers decided to stop focusing on producing um, some material in uh, Russian. And, um, but again, they have to find their space, so to speak, their room in Ukraine. And um, there are other processes which are taking place in Ukraine, which are not quite favorable for, the, for those write, uh, writers to keep writing in uh, Russian. So um, I guess my comment is about, again, this two-way interaction uh, between uh, not only Ukraine and Russia, but between any other state where Russian is spoken, that it is always perceived through the rhetoric of the Russian Federation that um, emphasizes the fact that uh, uh, Russian is first and foremost the language of the uh, Russian Federation. And in any other area, uh, it will be seen as a lower level, probably in terms of how that language is uh, spoken. And uh, it causes some uh, stigma and it causes some well, critical, uh, uh, critical um, uh, remarks, which are probably not very uh, flattering, uh, I'll put it uh, this way. However, as you do mention in your uh, book, uh, there are a lot of writers who were born in Ukraine and who started writing in Russian, and they were quite successful uh, in Russia. They received uh, awards and uh, their um, works were published uh, by... Um, prestigious um, venues. I guess this is, of course, um, one of the most interesting points, uh, and, and it also depends on the way the individual writer approaches this, uh, this, kind, this kind of issue. Uh, I had the chance, for example, and there are uh, a lot of, um, of studies about the situation in, in Latvia, uh, where um, Russian-speaking uh, uh, media, uh, we can just think about Medusa as one of the uh, most famous uh, Russian-speaking media, but especially Russian-speaking cultural actors as the literary group Orvita uh, can, can show us um, create and work exactly on this kind of interaction between um, Latvian and, and Russian, for example, so translating their own works in both, in both languages and so creating also uh, some uh, new processes and going on and developing in different in in different languages. I believe that this kind of perception of the Russian language products produced uh, outside of the Russian Federation as uh, um, we could say a low culture, so as belonging to low culture is of course a kind of a, a heritage of uh, of uh, of the uh, Soviet system and the and the uh, imperial one we just mentioned, for example, the case of of Nikolai Gogol, and so also the way he perceived this kind of um, inferiority uh, to uh, in the in the in the St. Petersburg scene, uh, while while uh, using a, um, also and adopting a kind of specific. Uh, uh, kind of Russian in, in his own works, also for literary uh, literary uh, intentions and literary reasons. Um, I see that uh, in throughout these thirty years, I would say there is a, a more awareness about the a possibility to use Russian differently, at least from below. 
So uh, what is really missing uh, in most cases is the uh, standardization from, from, from the top. And so the a kind of um, um, justification or answer that can be found uh, from the top to the presence of a different realm of culture in Russian language in different uh, in different countries uh, in the region, and I, I believe that is something that uh, uh, will uh, will come. Uh, we will be will have a kind of of uh, of result in the upcoming years because it's something that. It's one of the most important uh, results of the social developments in the last uh, in the latest 30 years. If you, yeah, I happen to read also uh, different works so authored by uh, scholars uh, in the field who uh, experience this kind of multiple um, multiple belonging to different cultural traditions. So, being Russian speakers, for example, uh, being born in Georgia moving to another state in the West and starting writing about uh, contemporary issues and also asking themselves um, the, uh, who, uh, who they are. And so I guess this is um, something uh, that, uh, that uh, will be um, more and more under the focus of different studies and, uh, and uh, will bring one day maybe and hopefully to a kind of institutionalization of state varieties of, of Russian worldwide. Because this is a process that was experienced by other languages, such as the German, English, and the Spanish. And, uh, and of course, maybe uh, one day will come uh, also for for Russian language. <laughs> Let's hope for that day to come soon. <laughs> and uh, I would like to uh, support your statement on the importance of awareness. Um, that probably these should be more aware of the importance of these issues. And it's not just about uh, what language you uh, speak or what language you choose to speak. Uh, I had an opportunity to um, uh, attend uh, one of the talks by Oksana Zabushko. It was, in, um, it was online. And she said that uh, uh, there is a lot of silence uh, in Ukraine, in Ukrainian culture, that the Ukrainians uh, do not tend to speak a lot. And uh, her comment was about traumas that the Ukrainians carry. Um, and I would say that, of course, there are a lot of traumatic, uh, tra uh, traumatic experiences in Ukraine. But I think that the language question can also be one of those traumatic um, experiences, especially today, especially after uh, 2014, but not only especially 20, uh, 2014, but uh, during the Sovietization, uh, during uh, Ukrainization as well and Russification of uh, Ukraine um, during the first years of the Soviet Union. Uh, I, I think that um, it's quite important to be aware uh, of these um, tendencies, of these processes, and it's quite important uh, to speak uh, about uh, these uh, tragedies and about these traumas. So I would like to thank you for your book and for your research and for bringing, for initiating this conversation about uh, these topics which are very sensitive and sometimes which, um, uh, these uh, topics are politicized. However, uh, they are politicized for manipulative um, purposes. But uh, I, I think as your book uh, proves, um, 
it's worth uh, talking about it and it's i would say high time for, uh, to start uh, and to start speaking about these issues which actually uh, do shape uh, the contemporary ukrainian identity uh, thank you so much marco for, for your book and for this um, uh, for this uh, conversation Today I spoke with Marko Puleri, author of Ukrainian, Russophone, Other Russian Hybrid Identities and Narratives in Post-Soviet Culture and Politics, published by Peter Lang in 2020. Thank you for listening to New Books in East European Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky. Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.